you're here on most Sunday evenings, you'll know that on Sunday evenings we follow the pattern given to us by the Shorter Catechism that gives us basic truths that are found in the Scriptures. And tonight, if you look in your bulletin, Sunday evening, you'll see that we're looking at question and answer 86, and I'll read that. And then I'm going to read Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Of course, the sermon is based on those verses, but the reason why we're thinking about those verses is because we're thinking about faith tonight. And the question is, what is faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for our salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. So the idea of faith is resting and relying upon Jesus Christ. And then these words that come from Ephesians, probably some of the best known words that describe what the Bible means by faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. We read, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, tonight we come to one of the most important concepts in the Christian faith, and that is the idea of faith. And although we may have come here with a rough idea what the Bible means by faith, we pray that you would help us to see more clearly not only what that word means, but also what it means to believe, to have faith in Jesus. We thank you for this word that was written to the Ephesians that was meant to explain to them what faith in Jesus Christ was about. And we also believe that when these words were given through Paul to the Ephesians many years ago, they were also intended for us here tonight sitting in Ada, Michigan, many, many years later. And because you are a God who transcends time and space, we can listen to these words with that divine intention. And so we pray that you would give us understanding, again, of this truth, but especially as it points us to the uniqueness of Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you want to know the difference between toaster ovens, as they existed 55 years ago and then 25 years ago and today, you only need to know this. When my parents were married about 55 years ago, they were given a toaster, not a toaster oven, a toaster that they continue to use to this day. My father's replaced the cord a couple of times, but it still works just like it did 55 years ago. My wife and I were also given a toaster when we were married 20-some years ago. That one didn't last as long. Some of it was simply that it no longer worked. There was also the benefit of going from two to four slices. Extreme extravagance. Today, I'm guessing if you've looked for a toaster, your primary thought is, why do they all seem so cheap? The reason I note the difference before, shall I call, three generations of toasters is because it really reflects a question that we often wonder about, and that is, what sorts of things last? What sort of things have endurance? Or to put it in a different way, in the subjective, what can we really trust in? What can we rely upon? 
if maybe one of the things that you plan on relying on, you're going to go to tomorrow morning, let me give you an example of your job. A friend of mine over the past year got a new job, received a promotion, was furloughed from that job, and then fired all in the course of 12 months. Maybe you've experienced something like that, something you really planned on. Maybe it was a relationship. You said, I do, and so did he. And then a number of years later, that all ended. Or think about the reliability of a political system. We like to think as though ours will last forever. It didn't for the Greeks, it didn't for the Romans, and I'm certain it will not for us as well. It seems to me that a great deal of what we experience in life is actually a reflection of our heart's longing for something that gives us certainty. We're longing for the time in which things were simply right. We could rest and rely upon something that would never change. In fact, I'm fairly confident that that longing is more than just a longing of our point in history. It is fundamental to the human heart. So tonight, if you're wondering where that certainty may lie... Let me introduce you to the biblical concept of faith as we find it here in Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Before we look at the words of these two verses and the concepts they introduce, the first thing I want you to know about this faith is that it is a part of a great work that God is doing in history. Faith is not simply an isolated something like you go to a shore, you pick up a stone, and you say, oh, a stone. No, this faith is part of something that is much larger. And the greater work that this is part of, this great work that God is doing in history in Ephesians chapter 2 is placed against the backdrop of the darkness of sin. In the couple verses that begin chapter 2 of Ephesians, we read that because of sin, apart from anything that God would do, if God would not act, we would be dead in our trespasses and sin. It's sort of like I was educated in English literature when I was in college, and the professor said he was a Christian. He said every good novel is simply a reflection of the human story. There is a problem that is solved by the one who is eventually the victor. In this story, the great human drama, the world in which we are living in, there is a problem, and the problem, the Bible says, is that we've rebelled against our Creator. So the question is, what is necessary in order for that to change, that no longer we would be estranged from God? The Bible says what has changed begins with God. God is the one who begins a great work of reversing all that is wrong in the world. And in this passage, in Ephesians 2, there is a tremendous stress And the way in which God does that work, it's not waiting for us to respond. The Bible says God comes to us first, and he comes to us graciously. To put it as starkly as possible, he does not consider how terrible you are as a boundary or a barrier to him coming to you. He moves first. Which means even if you are so embarrassed about some part of your life, you have lived to try to keep others from seeing that. Now part of what you fear is that God actually sees who you are. Tonight the terrible truth is he knows it all. But the beautiful truth 
is that that knowing it all is no boundary to keeping God from being gracious to you. In fact, it only highlights the tremendous grace of God that God would reach out and save someone like me. The only way that God would ever do such a work is that if he is motivated by love. And that grace is also extended to us in what Paul says is faith. Verse 8 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. The antecedent there to it, when he says it is a gift of God, is also faith. Paul is saying that what is given to us freely by God with no consideration for how good or bad we have been in the past, he is saying faith is a gift that God gives to us. It is given to us by grace. It is an amazing reality that in this horrible, horrible world that is so radically affected by sin, here comes God by his kindness, and he sets in plan a motion, and he gives us faith also by his grace. Now, I realize when I say that, you might ask the question, what is faith then? Why the stress on the grace of God that comes to us is demonstrated in faith? What is faith? I first want to tell you what it is not. It is not, and now I'm going to read a quote, and some of you, you're going to think it's long and hard to understand, so I'll read it and then I'll summarize it. The summary only takes about 10 words. The quote is this. Christianity has done its utmost to close the circle and declared even doubt to be sin. One is supposed to be cast into belief without reason, as if by a miracle. There's no reason to believe, we're just supposed to. And from that uncertain beginning, to swim in that faith as though it is the brightest and least ambiguous thing in all the world. Even a glance toward land which would give us real certainty, even that thought is not something we are called to have. Even the slightest impulse of our amphibious nature is sin. Now, that is quite something to say, and I'm going to summarize it in less than 10 words. First, the author of that quote was Friedrich Nietzsche. The summary of that quote is this simple. Nietzsche is describing what many people would believe is faith. Faith is this. It is hoping that something is true without any foundation in reality. Is that 10 words? It's simply saying you want it to be true. That's like me wanting the Lions to win. It may not have any basis in reality. I just want it to have happen. I can say I have faith it's going to happen, but there's no way for me to know that. It's not based in reality. That reality, if it does happen, has not even come to pass yet. And for many people, maybe even some of us tonight, we think to ourselves, that's what faith really is. Faith is hoping that something is true without any foundation in reality. Let me tell you, that's not what the Bible means here tonight. It is not just a grand hope. In fact, it is the opposite of that. It is faith that is rooted on a foundation or based on a foundation of reality. I think what we see in Ephesians chapter 2 and the rest of the Bible tells us about faith, and it leads us to actually 
more of a deep confidence than anything else that we might have confidence in. It leads us to a confidence in Jesus Christ that is unlike any confidence you can have in anything or anyone else in this world. And what I'd like to do tonight is describe to you what the Bible says are the three parts of faith, all that fit together very nicely, like different gears all meshed together. These three elements of faith are helpful in rooting us in a place of confidence in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He has received or as He has offered to us in the gospel. The first thing that is noted in the scriptures about genuine faith is what we might call knowledge. That is, we have some idea what we are believing in. And I do not mean that in the casual sense, as though you have a bit of understanding. You might say, for example, or perhaps you have heard someone say, sure, I'm a Christian. And what they mean is that there is some historical basis for that claim. For example, maybe when you grew up, your parents took you to church. Maybe occasionally on Easter and Christmas, or maybe every Sunday. I know when you ask a lot of people, maybe you... If I were to ask you, are you a Christian, you would say, of course I am. I was raised in a Christian family, went to a Christian church. Of course I am a Christian. That's in spite of the fact that you may have little or no knowledge about Jesus Christ yourself. I would guess that is for many people, maybe even again for some of us, what we mean when we say we are Christians. We have some historical connection, a name, perhaps not a lot of knowledge, whoever, But what the Bible says is that you need to have knowledge in order to have genuine faith. It is difficult to have much confidence in something you know little about. If I asked you, for example, after the service, I said, on my days off on Mondays, I'm going to start my own little business, and I'm wondering if you would invest in that business. How would you like to be an investor in this grand scheme I have? I hope that all of you, no matter who I asked, would say, well, tell me what kind of business it is. And further, what kind of experience do you have at running that business? And where are the opportunities? And how does this work? You want more than just my word that this is a good idea. You want to know, do I know how a business works? You're asking for knowledge that I would give you in order for you to trust me. Romans 10, verse 17, 14 and 17. First ask the question, how should they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how should they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how shall they hear without someone preaching? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Notice the progression If you do not know who Christ is, you cannot believe in him. So do you want to grow in your confidence in Jesus? The Bible says you must know him. In fact, the more you know him, the more potential you have of believing in him. That means something very personal for me when I preach to you on Sunday mornings and evenings. That is, I must tell you about Jesus. In the same way that if you come to my house, as some of you did this afternoon, there may be a moment where I describe something to you about my wife. 
Why? Because I love my wife. I trust my wife. She's a great gift to me. My wife is never sort of a subject for me to discuss. She's very close to my heart. I know her well. In a similar and a better fashion, when I'm preaching to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, you should hear and come to understand who this Jesus is. We are not here in this building tonight for me to simply parse a passage to you, leave here better informed. My purpose for you is that you leave here knowing and trusting in Jesus. That you will feel compelled to say, this Jesus is like no one else. I know about him in a way that I'm led to believe there's no one else I can believe in like this Jesus. And if that's the response you have, then at least this first part of faith is met. It also means this in terms of an implication if faith requires knowledge, that you must be here to hear it. (laughs) And that reading your Bible is important. And that meditating on Jesus Christ is critical. Do you want to believe in Jesus Christ? Do you want to rest and rely upon him? Do you trust in him? If the answer is yes, then the Bible says you need to know who he is. The second thing the Bible says about genuine Christian faith is that beyond simply just knowing who he is, you need to affirm that knowledge is true. You must have some conviction about that knowledge. You cannot only say, I know that is true, but that matters to me deeply. Let me give you an example. Imagine that you were asked to coach a basketball team in a very close game, and you're down with one with just a few seconds left in the game, and the other team has lost their cool and been assessed a technical foul. And you look at the players on the floor, and you ask your question, Who is best equipped to shoot this free throw so that we can tie the game and then potentially win? You might even turn to your assistant and ask, who is the best free throw percentage on this team? Shouldn't you ask that question? Certainly you're looking for an answer that is based in knowledge. You want to know, imagine your assistant says to you, you know, I've never checked that out. I have no idea. Just pick somebody. You say, I have picked the wrong assistant coach. You need to know that. You need to have that knowledge, but what I'm encouraging you to do is to think not only that you need knowledge, but that you need to affirm that knowledge to be true in a way that matters. So let me just press a little bit in that scenario what I mean in addition to knowledge. You begin to think not only of what player has the highest free throw percentage, but you may ask the question, and who shoots well under pressure and who seems to love the moments when you can perform best when the lights are on you see the point i'm making is that you're not simply looking for confidence in facts you're not called tonight to believe the bible is true about some things You're called to believe that the Bible's testimony is true because it leads to to affirm that Jesus Christ is true, that you can trust in him, that the truth of the Scripture matters because it reveals to us who Jesus is. Jesus is the one 
that you can look to in hope. Let me suggest that one of the most important aspects of faith that is critical for being engaged with the big ideas of our time is this notion of affirming the truth. If you haven't, typically, I pray that in this coming week, you'll come across people that you can talk to who might have very different convictions about God. We live in western Michigan, and we may live under the impression, which is entirely false, that most people who are living here already have heard about God. Most of them are already Christians. So who in the world could we talk about? You know how wrong that is? It takes me no longer than a half hour somewhere in Ada to talk to somebody who is not a Christian. There are many people around you every day who would not be able to affirm that they know anything about Jesus Christ or they know very little about him, and they certainly would not affirm that he is worthy of their trust. And so what I'm saying about this second aspect of faith, the second gear that fits into the mesh of this, is that it's important for you to not only know who Jesus Christ is, you must have a confidence and a conviction that it is true, that he is true. That this is not mere information for you, but you believe it to the point of having confidence in him. Or let me just say it a bit differently. The reason we believe in Jesus and his word is not because we're simply taught that to be true by our parents or by our church or by our school. We believe we have faith in Jesus Christ because he is true and because he is reliable. I can remember a critical moment in my college education. It was worth all the thousands of dollars that I paid. I went to a Christian college, and I can remember being challenged in my intro to philosophy class whether I believed in the God of the universe as revealed in the Bible because my parents had taught me and my church had taught me or whether or not I ought to believe because it was true. This is not an echo chamber. We get together and tell each other, yes, we believe it's true, and hope that by simply affirming this over and over, everyone eventually cannot see any option but say yes. You know what I'm trying to compel you to believe is that the scriptures are true, in fact. They're a reflection of the reality that we exist in, and part of that reality is that Jesus alone is trustworthy. As you come to know him, It is inevitable as you know him that you will also see the reliability of Jesus like no one else. That he can do for us what we would never do for ourselves. We'd not be possible to do for ourselves. And no one else beside Jesus could do as well. Let me encourage you not to make this into a matter of arrogance as we engage with those around us. But it's as true as I read from Ephesians chapter 2, we receive this as a sign of God's kindness to us. So rather than knowledge and affirming that knowledge leading us to arrogance and a haughty attitude, instead it should bring us to the greatest of humility. We should be the most humble people. This truth is meant to affirm to me the only reason I know Jesus is because God is merciful to me. It's not because I'm smarter It's not because I was raised in the right place. It's not because I am more handsome than anyone else, whatever that would mean. It is because God has shown his kindness. 
And if God has done that for me, then I can speak to others with the same notes of, con- of kindness with confidence that a faith that is given to me by grace should naturally lead me to knowledge and affirming of that knowledge. Those are two components, the two wheels, gears that mesh together. The third is what we call trust. Our catechism says that it is a resting and relying upon Jesus Christ. When we say that faith includes trust, it is such an important component for faith that we sometimes use it as a synonym. I have faith, that is, I trust Jesus. And it is a very important component. You can have knowledge about Jesus, you can even affirm it should matter to you, but apart from, as the catechism says, giving yourself over to Jesus Christ, resting or relying upon him, you do not have faith. To illustrate this to you, I want to read a passage that perhaps you've heard before. This is from James chapter 2, verse 19. In that passage, we read about demons. These are evil spirits who know who God is, probably better than you do or I do. They have seen a spiritual reality that we do not have access to in the way they do. And these demons also have knowledge of God that they affirm that God says who he is and he is able to do what he says. They have seen that since the beginning of time. Any demon who is honest, of course, will say God exists and he is who he claims to be. I can affirm that to be true. But of course, the thing that's missing is this third third part of faith, that is trust. They are unable to give themselves over to God. They are not willing to rest and rely upon Him. They're not willing to say it is better to trust in Him than in anything else. In fact, I would say quite honestly, if you're listening to this and you don't trust in Jesus, this is the point at which we typically get stuck. Some get stuck at the knowledge. Some get stuck at the affirming like it matters. Most of us get stuck here. Because this is more than an intellectual ascension. This is at the very heart of who I am saying I must give myself over to someone else. It is the natural implication my life has not lived for me and it is not under my control. I am giving up control of myself and my, and my future to another being, I'm going to live for him. The trust of faith is a willingness, as I have said, to give ourselves over to the one we trust in. It is a willingness to rest in the one who is trustworthy. And again, I would say this aspect of faith is particularly critical in a world that is often skeptical. Not everyone is skeptical, but there's a lot more skepticism than there was even 50 or certainly more than 100 or 200 years ago. Skepticism is simply this. There really isn't anything I can trust, so I should guard myself against everything that claims to be true and trustworthy. There is nothing that is certain. Instead of having a toaster that existed for 50 years, the mind says there's no good toaster There never can be. There's no reliable person. God is not to be trusted. 
I want to be sympathetic tonight if you have some of that skepticism in your mind. I think I have an idea why it would exist. I would even tell you it makes sense to me. We are part of a Western culture where in an earlier time in our culture, there was an unwarranted confidence in certain things that did not fully deliver. That science and through discovery of new things, we would come to a cure for what ails us. If not science, at least educating, if we became educated enough as a culture and everyone understood what is true, if we only gave enough education, finally we would move past what we suffer with as human beings singularly and together. There was a commitment to progress. I've noted in previous sermons how one of the first World's Fair had above the entrance, progress is our hope. We'll be able to discover together, if we only band together, how to overcome the problems that exist in our world. Only that optimism never delivered. There still were wars. There are wars at the moment we're sitting here for all of our technological advances. There are people seeking to kill each other in various parts of the world. As good as science is, and I'm very thankful for science, science could not prevent us from suffering at the worldwide tragedy over the last three, four years. It was not capable. It's the most amazing thing that we often reassured ourselves when you saw those movies where there was some prediction of a worldwide pandemic. Didn't you say in your heart, well, that'll never happen. Why? Because science will keep us from suffering that way. Someone will catch it. We've progressed to the point that can't happen anymore. We don't live in the Middle Ages with black death, do we? Turns out that we were just as susceptible now as we were then. And so if you think to yourself, we just need to progress and everything will get better. We just need more discovery. We need to work harder and everything will become good. That is our hope. I understand why you're a skeptic. It hasn't worked. And you even see indications it's not working now. Which brings us to the real heart of what true faith is. It is not a trust in ourselves. It's not a trust in us together. It's not a trust that we can progress together. It is at this very heart what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. It is putting a confidence in our God through Jesus Christ that he can deliver us when no one else can. Maybe the way that I can best describe that is the inevitability of the impossible. I have laid this challenge before you and I do it again tonight. You can look the world over. In fact, I would challenge you. If you listen to my voice and you say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ, because there very well might be other options that are better to him, I would challenge you to seek those things out. Not to simply say they can't be, but go ahead and try them out. And as you do, you will come to the inevitable conclusion, as Paul says here, there's one escape in life. There's one being who sets all things right. 
There is one who is absolutely reliable to the point that you can rest and rely upon him. And it's not you and it's not us. It's no other part of creation. It is Jesus Christ and him alone. What is faith? If you don't remember anything else from tonight's sermon, please put this in your mind. Faith in Jesus is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for our salvation as he has offered us in the gospel. Let's bow in prayer. Father, it is a beautiful thing to look to your word, both in its parts and its whole, to understand what you were teaching us. It's even better that this knowledge points us to a being that is our Savior Jesus. Not a mere collection of facts, not an assembly of something that we construct and we hope that it can bear the weight of our trust as it is laid upon that structure. But we're really looking to another being. We're looking to God himself, the one who came in our place and lived our life and died our death and rose in victory over sin and now is ruling from heaven itself. And if we know him, we believe in the truth of who he is and we give ourselves over to him, we will find a peace that Paul says passes all understanding. And I ask tonight for those of us who do believe that you would guard our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ as Paul continues. That our faith, whatever stage it is, whether we are coming to faith, whether we believe but we are uncertain There are times where that faith seems to waver or whether we have been a believer in Christ for many, many years. We pray tonight in these words that come from the truth of the Scriptures that you would drive even deeper into our hearts not just the possibility but the joy of resting and relying upon Jesus Christ. It is in Him that we pray. Amen.